university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. And joining me today on the line in our Coronapocalypse series of roundtables is series regular Dr. Rick Stevens. Dr. Stevens is an associate professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And also joining us for the first time, someone I've been wanting to get onto the program for quite some time now, host of the Vox podcast and also doctoral student at Duquesne University, Chris Maverick. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, how's it going? Well, nice to see you again, Chris, and nice to meet you, Rick. <laughs> Good to have you here. So today what I have done is I have gathered together two of the most knowledgeable people that I know about comic books so that we could do some comic book stuff. And as you might guess from me bringing two comic book scholars on today, part of this is going to be very much academic sort of the things that we always do on this. And part of it will probably descend into quite a bit of nerdetry. So you'll have a little bit of both to play around with today. There are some things that we are going to get into that definitely have some very scholarly origins as we always do on the podcast, but all three of us are comic readers. And so we'll probably do some fandom stuff here as well. But today we are completely deep diving into the history and lore and storylines of the X-Men. X-Men comics. X-Men produced by Marvel Comics. Debut issue 1963, which puts it firmly in the Silver Age. Part of the reason why we have Mav here today is because Mav is a Silver Age scholar. He is writing his <laughs> dissertation specifically on Silver Age. Not just Silver. That's just where I was in a mood complaining about because I was in that point. You're talking about what I was posting on social media last week. No, yes. no, I was in a particular point of the Silver Age that got quite silly, and so, so I, so, so, so it's actually not. I, you mean awesome? Yes. Well, oh no, I, I actually very much enjoy it. However, I, I, I understand what I'm reading. <laughs> yeah. No, I started in the Golden Age, and I go all the way up to now in my dissertation. So yeah. Cool. So X-Men gets its start in the Silver Age in 1963. It has continued to today in various forms. There have been, at one point in time, I believe there were legitimately 12 different X titles at the same time being printed and produced. So X-Men is certainly what I would consider to be one of Marvel's flagship properties. It is one of their big properties. There's certainly something about the X-Men that really touches people. So number one, I want to put our listeners at ease. You do not have to be an X-Men scholar. You do not have to be all the way well-versed in X-Men lore or be a really a comic book reader at all to get into this conversation that we're going to have today. I mean, it'll help, but it's nice 
it's not necessary. That said, I thought we would start with giving a little bit of X history, where the comic comes from and why. This is usually why I have Rick here, because Rick (laughs) is a comic historian and understands the origins of things. Mm -hmm. I can talk about the origins of X-Men in terms of storyline, but Rick is usually more on top of production-wise why a thing comes into into being. So maybe let's start there and then we'll work our way into stuff. Sure. So one of the things about the X-Men, Dr. Bell and I have this ongoing discussion about the X-Men versus the Avengers, which are kind of the two team properties that start in the Silver Age and work their way into the Bronze Age and then into the what we used to call the Modern Age so long ago. But <laughs> one of the jokes is that Chris will say, you're either an X-Men fan or an Avengers fan, right? And there's reasons for that. And partly it's because the construction of those two teams were completely different. You know, the Avengers is a team that's built around trying to mimic in some ways the success that Justice League of America had over at DC. The X-Men was a different kind of book because from the beginning, the, the key demarcation is that we have a group of teen superheroes, whereas the Avengers have a variety, a, a big cast that's, you know, kind of world spanning over its duration. The idea of the X-Men is we're going to bring together these five teenagers and put them on a team, and then we're going to deal with the kind of teen politics that Marvel and before that, you know, their Atlas publications had been very interested in. So... That's, the, that's one of the big differences. But then you also have this allegory that runs through it in that because they're teenagers, you have the added aspect of the mutant narrative, which is they are not superheroes by choice. They have these abilities, these characteristics, these what could be considered deformities or could be considered advantages that are instilled at them at birth, but that get activated by puberty. Right. And that becomes kind of the pattern. They're born this way. But puberty, that really hard time for teenagers when hormones are driving them, they're trying to find their place in the world. Generations are trying to frame it for them and they're trying to fit into it. And all of that allegory kind of folds in on itself because this idea of mutants who have powers that activate at puberty and then they have to cope with their abilities, their identities, their place on this team. And that kind of creates this kind of special place for that. So that's that's the key difference between those two big team books, you know, and then of course the Fantastic Four being more of a family, nuclear family book. But the other thing that we should talk about is that when you look at the publication history of the X-Men, that original Silver Age model, which was very carefully curated, was actually not as popular as people seem to think it was today. When people think of the X-Men, they immediately move to the Bronze Age stories, Mm -hmm. which honestly, when Dr. Bell says that X-Men is one of those core Marvel texts, X-Men in the late 70s and early 80s, that is the Marvel text. I mean, that that drew so many people into Marvel comics. Those were all the best-selling books as... Dr. Bell has ridden me many times. I've talked about the Avengers, but also Captain America. He'll point out that, hey, look through the 80s when you're saying Captain America is so influential. Is he in the top 10 this month? No. Is he in the top 10 that month? No. (laughs) Is he in the top 10 that month? No, because all of those X books. And even about the point that Captain America would start to get into popularity, then all of a sudden there was a Wolverine limited series. And all of a sudden, all these little spinoff books... There was a mutant craze that happened in the 80s, which, of course, exploded in the 90s. And that's when we had, you know, 12 ongoing series that were very hard to follow. (laughs) And in many ways since then, 
there's kind of been this constant retread of trying to find ways to get all of those generations of mutant Marvel fans to connect back to these properties. And so if you go to read X-Men today, there are versions of the book that tie into what was great about the 80s. There are versions of the books that tie back into what was great about the 90s. There are even versions of the books that tie back to those original 60s, because those fans do still exist. Mm -hmm. But it's a collective of fans who all are built, or all in some way interested in this allegory of having your genetic code determine your identity and having to decide how you're going to interact with society about that. Does society get to tell me who I am or do I get to tell society, no, I get to define myself. And I think that's the core of the ongoing X-Men story. Yeah, this is where the split between... The reason I say there are Avengers fans and there are <laughs> X-Men fans and the two typically don't cross over with each other. The reason I say that is because the core of what the the title is about, the core of what the title speaks to. And the reason I say that is because I have found, and this is anecdotal and perhaps somewhat controversial, but maybe not. I have found that the more identity categories you occupy that are split from what we might consider mainstream, mm -hmm. the more you gravitate towards X-Men. And I'm not saying that Avengers is a white dude's book and X-Men is for people of color, for queer people or women or whatever. What I'm saying is at the core of X-Men is a story about what it means to be an oppressed person. Yeah what it means to be an oppressed people, mm -hmm. what it means for everyone who is like you to be problems in society. In a mutant universe, the way I explain it to my students is this, like we're all sitting here, we're having a conversation, we're having a good time, whatever, but you know, if Mav suddenly burst into flames right now, <laughs> that would scare the bejesus out of the two of us. <laughs> right. And we wouldn't necessarily want to hang out with him all the time mm -hmm. because who knows when he's going to burst into flames, yeah. right? What if your power isn't bursting into flames? What if your power is walking through walls? Well, now someone can break into your house. They can go into the bank and steal mm -hmm. all the money. They're scary people. Yeah. And so if you are a member of a certain societal class of people that everyone has been systematically told they need to be afraid mm -hmm. of a story about that happening to people over and over again might be more appealing than a story about a group of regular old white dude superheroes who save the universe on behalf of the government organization shield. Like there's a split. There. And even worse than that, because I mean, when you look at it, you know, just to illustrate when the Avengers deal with diversity, for example, it's because the United Nations determines <laughs> that the Avengers as the establishment <laughs> should have more diversity on it. So when Black Panther retires, they decide we're going to add the Falcon and kick Hawkeye off the team because we have to have right. affirmative action played out in this organization. There's yeah, everything right. about the Avengers is so much about establishment, about representation, but representation of the establishment. And the X-Men is absolutely that underground, which is why when you see them interact at key points in their histories, you have this, the Avengers always reaching out to the Avengers saying, oh, we're all on the same side. And the X-Men are often like, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. <laughs> you, you you get invited to the White House. We have to run right. for our lives and hide. Right. You know, from, and from giant killer it's a robots. Very different narrative. Right. The Sentinels don't show up at Avengers headquarters. Right. Yeah. There's a little bit of pushback that, that I always, so I agree structurally that that is the purpose of the book. In fact, certainly under Claremont, he has entirely said so. 
Stan has said so about his stories, but it's, you know, what you can trust to Stan's memory. Well, when he was around Stan, Stan, even in his younger days, retconned his statements from minute to minute. I, we just did an X-Men yes. show on, on, <laughs> yes. on my show and, and that someone asked that and was like, it's hard. <laughs> what can you trust to Stan? However, the author is dead and I, I don't necessarily care about what his intent was. The pushback that I would give is that, yes, that's what the book was. Yes, it is about being ostracized just for who you are. Understand, and all the way up until Giant Size Number 1, when Claremont revamps the team, that group of outsiders was largely very attractive, white, heteronormative teenagers. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. yes, one of them had wings that he could easily hide. It's a pain, but like Angel was capable of hiding his wings under his suit. Marvel Girl's just pretty. Cyclops, okay, you have red glasses. The um, Iceman, if he's not using his powers, nobody cares. The Beast had big feet. He wasn't, he wasn't blue, blue yet. yet. He was just, right. yeah, yeah. He was, right. he was just a guy with big feet and big hands. You know, you put on shoes, nobody notices. You know, he wasn't obscenely, obscenely othered, at least visually. That happens later under right. Claremont. The other problem is once they, once Claremont comes in and... I'm always very hesitant about this because much like with Black Panther, which I think was a very good move and a very problematic move, Claremont comes in, Claremont's push is to make a diverse team, is to make a multicultural team. Mm -hmm. And actually, Claremont doesn't make that decision. Lynn Wein does. Lynn Wein writes those first few issues. Claremont jumps in about, I want to say, seven or eight issues. In it. Oh, no, no, it's a little longer. But anyway, Claremont does most of that run. When they make that revamp, what ends up happening is you have a explicitly multicultural team to the point that it starts to fall into tokenism a bit, especially in the case of Storm, who is, so you have a explicitly Irish person, you have an explicitly Native American person, you have an explicitly German, an explicitly Russian, an explicitly Japanese, at least for a while. And then you have Storm, who is from the country of Africa. <laughs> which, which, which she's just, she just the African and where is she from? I don't know. Kenya. Why not? It sort of doesn't matter because she represents all of Africans, all of women. And she is sort of she is gratuitously token. And that sense. it changes. Eventually, it gets better. Other people come around. And then you have Nightcrawler, who is just the most visually distinct from anybody else. So therefore, he becomes the one that they always rally behind. He, more so than Aurora, is often the, oh, well, you're being beat up because you're black. You're being beat up because you're gay. You're being beat up because you're any other. So it's there's a there's a failing of intersectionality that happens when you take it too seriously. I also think that it's the 70s. And you have one guy trying to do this and give Claremont credit with word too. It's just much like anything. I think the issues are always more complex than just saying it failed or it didn't fail. I think that Chris, on your last episode, or at least the last episode, as we take, there was a question of, I yell at podcasts while I listen to them, including my own, but <laughs> like when I listen to my own, it's like, why didn't I say that? What's wrong with you? You had the question of, is Whedon a feminist or not? And you and you answered is, well, he is until he isn't. Yes. And that's true of literally every feminist on the world. That's true of Gloria Steinem. Yes, we're all humans. We all have failings. And, and I think that that's what happened with Claremont. I think he was doing his best, but he's still just a man. He's just one guy writing the story that he writes. And it's not perfect. I think you guys also said on your show and I said on my show, if it were perfect, I would not have a job. 
Oh, yay. This gives me something right. to do with my life, so great. The issue that I continue to raise on this show, and also in my own classrooms, is who tells the story matters so much for the story itself, right? Because you're right, this is an imperfect representation of oppression, mostly because for it's almost its entire history, it's been written by white yes. people who are observant to oppression, but who do not largely experience mm-hmm. in the same way. You know, and every time I say that, someone pushes back on me with, well, these were two Jewish kids in New York in the 1960s. And I'm like, well, sure they were, but they weren't black kids in Harlem mm-hmm. in the 1960s. Right. It's still different. And they weren't kids. I mean, by the time Stan and Jack are doing X-Men number one, they're relatively, I mean, they're not rich. Yeah. Well, Jack never got to be rich. Stan got to be kind of wealthy. He's not where he would end up once he's in L.A. But the struggling kid who invented Captain America had grown up 30 years prior. It, it, it had been a while. He wasn't poor. He wasn't scraping by. By the time X-Men comes around, Kirby is already acknowledged as probably the greatest artist of his generation. And people are already speculating that he's going to be the most important figure in comics. And stands on his way there. So it's not its not like when Siegel and Schuster sold Superman for 200 bucks. It's not the same thing. Well, and one of the things about Marvel Comics and that was different from their competitors was that intense focus on audience and who individual books were. Like coming out of the Atlas era, I kind of do this when... I talk about the Fantastic Four, that when you look at the Fantastic Four, people say, oh, it's amazing that all of these things come together. And in one sense, that's true. And the other, it's, well, they took their mad scientist science fiction books. They took their hot rod teen books. They took their romance books. And then they took their monster books and then just piled them all together Mm -hmm. to make this kind of stuff happen. It's very similar when you think about like the, the genesis of the X-Men, in many ways, they had worked out a lot of the teen drama. Like The way that they do teen drama is actually very consistent with the way that those earlier books had come. So you're absolutely right. You've got two middle-aged people that had been writing and producing these books for teens as they thought about them. And that's probably part of the reason why that book, you know, resonated some, but really struggled. The message was was resonating with some people, but in terms of its popularity, it never really did what the Avengers did early on, partly because of who's writing it. Mm-hmm. And Chris Claremont caught something different. Mm-hmm. And yes, tokenism, representation, and all of that, but he also tapped into something that was a little bit more attractive to certain audiences than what that original piece had been. Well, he wrote a real story. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Stan... Again, you said that I'm a Silver Age scholar. In a way, I'm critical of things that I love. I adore those stories. If you read those first four issues, uh, if you are a comic reading person who started in the 21st century, if you are a person who's grown up in the Me Too era, if you're a person who's grown up in the modern, and I don't mean modern in the academic sense, in the postmodern, the post-postmodern 21st century world, and you read Stan's X-Men comics, you're going to be horrified because why is this old bald man hitting on this 15 year old girl, which yes. is a thing that, yes. which is a thing that happens because it's, it, because it's a romance comic and everybody is in love with Jean because she's the only female character. Except Bobby. <laughs> Bobby's young, but he kind of is. In the first issue of X-Men within three panels, four different people sexually harass Jean Grey yes. from the moment she walks in the room. But not Bobby. <laughs> He's right. also he's supposed to be like eleven or twelve. He's supposed to be the youngest. It's got problems, but it's also of a different era. 
and they're trying to write a romance comic. They're they're figuring out what it is. X Men is effectively canceled for years. For people who don't know, like not only was it not popular, issues sixty six, sixty three, something like that through like 96 are just reprints of earlier issues, not changes. They just redid them because it was, it was not selling. It was just like, oh, we need a book on the shelves and we'll just run the same story again. Giant Size uh, is the reboot with uh, written by Lynn Wein. And all he did, I mean, yes, it's multicultural. Yes, he's trying. He also exactly copied the bridge of the Enterprise. Like Captain Kirk Enterprise? And, and, and think about it. It's literally the black lady, the Russian guy. He picked an Irish guy instead of a Scottish guy. <laughs> he picked a Japanese guy. Like, it's literally the bridge of the Enterprise. And he's just like, boom. Okay, we'll make them all superheroes. And we'll add an, we'll add an, an engine because like <laughs> because it was the 70s. But he had, he added a Native American that they called an Indian. And other than that, it was, and then they killed him off immediately. Well, I was about to say, and then he dies in the first yeah. issue. Like oh, it's the second issue. Well, first in the giant size. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, the first non-giant size issue. The not, first non-giant <laughs> yes. size, yeah. And Chris Claremont takes it a different way. He's, uh, again, not get, saying he's perfect, but he wrote the book for 16 years. And the reason he wrote the book for 16 years was because he was responsible for largely turning it into the change that happened in the Bronze Age and the Silver Age. Ongoing narratives weren't very common in the Silver Age. You might have a story that might last two issues, but the order of reading Silver Age comics doesn't matter that much. It, I mean, yes, there are moderate character progression changes. Umberto Echo once said that the myth of a superhero is that a myth cannot be consumed, so the status quo needs to be constantly reset. And that was extremely true in Silver Age books. There was, you know oh, we might have a little bit of a story point, but if it's not resolved within four or five issues, that's a huge deal. Claremont decides he wants to write a soap opera, and he trusts his audience to sort of figure things out and stay on board. And But for the first two pages of every... If you go through that early run, the X-Men introduce themselves, their, the entire team, every issue in the first two pages, because, as Stan said, every issue is someone's first issue. That was a stand thing. And he really believed that. So he made him, you know, make sure that, and here's Wolverine. And that everybody had on those first two pages, they always had a character beat that introduced them. But other than that, there is storyline progression that kind of goes from month to month to month to the point where even more so than now in the modern age, you're, you're having people who are writing towards trade paperback. So every storyline is exactly six to eight issues long. The Dark Phoenix saga, if you buy the Dark Phoenix Saga trade paperback, it starts at the technical Dark Phoenix Saga, but those, but the seeds of it, the storyline progression of the Dark Phoenix Saga is over like 30 issues. And it's really, you don't get the same effect if you start with just those six issues that are technically called the Dark Phoenix Saga, because he's writing, he's taking from literal soap operas, and he's trying to build a story over years and years and years and years. Things like Jean Grey and, and Logan having an attraction to each other. That happens organically. And the idea that someone in a committed relationship, this is not the same as when she's just the designated flirty, would understand she's in a relationship with Scott and essentially cheating on him in as much as there can be a sexual relationship at all in 1970s comics. But there's a very definite attraction between her and Logan that's explored. There's a there's very definite you know moral ambiguity of Logan. There's ethical stuff that's going on with the races, especially with Nightcrawler and with Storm. So there's 
there's a lot there. There's Peter and Kitty having a relationship, which is, uh, yes, I realize that now you look at it and it's kind of icky because you know, like 19 or 20 and she's like 15. It was kind of icky then. And it's dealt with. It, it's dealt with not great because he's not going to say, and they had sex in a, in a 1970s book. Right. But it's, it's very, they very much deal with the question of should this late teen, early 20 something man be interested in this 15 year old girl? It, that is part of the storyline. And he is trusting his readers to stay on board and deal with that as an issue that a real 15-year-old reader might have. So one of the things, and I know we're talking comics, and that's mostly my interest and, and your interest as well. Mm-hmm. But this has also been one of the reasons why I've thought of that's the problem with X-Men films. They're un, It's unfilmable what Chris Claremont did. You can't put 30 issues into a two-hour movie and and adequately draw on it. And that's why, even though I have liked the later films and and, and X-Men put Marvel Comics on the map and in terms of the text being filmable, the storylines itself, there's always that the shortcuts that have to be taken, the way that it has to be truncated, has to be overshown, under-discussed, you know, Mm -hmm. those narratives. Partly because of what you're saying, the success of those 80s X-Men comics just doesn't fit into a two-hour feature-length set of projects. And so it's the most popular film franchise for a while and the most popular comic, but the two almost are completely divergent because of what that storytelling formula was and how it doesn't fit into trade paperbacks, how it doesn't fit into films and all of the modern media conventions. Not without adaptation, anyway. I mean, I don't hate any of those movies. I think, And I think that there can be... I think Logan is the best superhero movie ever made. Bar none. It's one of the best movies ever made. I, Shots fired. Not, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not saying it's my favorite. I said it's the best. I think those are. I think those are. I think those are different statements, <laughs> and I, which is a whole different discussion. As as far as like, but see, the reason I think Logan worked is it did not try to adapt Old Man Logan, even though that's what it was clearly based right. on. They wrote a movie because writing a movie is different than writing a comic book. Right. I very much enjoy Endgame and Infinity War. I think that they are phenomenal. I'm a huge because, and I love them because I'm a nerd who sat there and watched 22 movies worth of homework in order to get ready for, for the story. If you, as a piece of, as a scholar, as if I were going to teach a intro to screenwriting course, I cannot show a kid Infinity War because it makes no sense. There's no beginning. You're, chap- you're 20 chapters into the story. They never say Captain America's name in that movie. <laughs> like, it, like it, you're just you're supposed to keep up. And I think that the later X-Men movies are even worse. The first X-Men movie, X-Men 99, that you can kind of figure out. You know, there's like a, hi, I'm Logan, and I'm here in Canada doing stuff. But then if you get down to when you're at the Days of Future Past section, that makes no sense. Where where do these people come from? Why are people a lot? Last we saw Professor X, he was dead, and then he comes back, and he's back. And, you know, the, the low, Wolverine had his claws ripped out of him in literally the last movie. They forget about it. The continuity just kind of is thrown away from moment to moment to moment. Why in the most recent X Men films, you know, the, the Days of well, not First Class, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix. They're all teenagers again, which I understand that choice. But if you're going to make them teenagers again, why start it during the Cuban Missile Crisis and end in the 90s and have them not age? I mean, yes, I realize that happens in comics because of a limitation of how the perpetual publication model of comics happens. But you didn't have to replicate that. 
you chose to replicate that for your movie series in a way that calls attention to itself and makes it not work. So I think there are flaws and I think you can get away from them if you want to write a good movie, but they weren't trying to, they were trying to pack a bunch of Easter eggs and amuse some comic fans and to better or worse extents they did. And I think Logan actually tries to make a movie. Number one, I am a comic scholar who teaches a screenwriting class, and there is a reason why on the first day of class, I hand them the script to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. Which I would argue is the best superhero movie ever made for exactly the same reasons why you mm-hmm. argue that's a good example too. Logan is the best superhero mm-hmm. movie ever made. It's a, it's, a, it's a comic book movie that they loosely base on the mm-hmm. source material, but then they tell a comic book mm-hmm. story. Yeah, I, I, that's also a, definitely an arguable one where you go, yeah, you know who... They explain to you who the talking tree is early on. And that's exactly good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Yeah. The, the second thing I was going to say is that I think the problem that the newer X-Men movies have is that they're weirdly beholden to the old X-Men movies. And by old, I mean, 1998, old, yeah. old. <laughs> but like the, exactly like the 98, 99 <laughs> movies in ways that are, that, that are bizarre and make no sense because those movies were terrible. <laughs> those movies were patently terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Halle Berry storm, Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, the original run of that, those X-Men films are so bad because they latched on to the wrong part of the X-Men story. I like the first one, but I don't disagree Um, with you. And they were bad (laughs) movies made at a time when they were making bad superhero movies. That's my thing. I I don't think they're bad. I think that they are bad because we have, in the year 2000, X-Men was the best superhero movie ever made because it was competing with, it was trying to be a bridge between, and I think this is important, it, it was a bridge between the Chris Reeves Superman era, which is miraculous and, and amazing to watch, but because I watched it in 1976, you know, so so I remember it, but like watching it now, you're like, yeah, okay. Do you believe a man can fly? No, not yeah. really. I believe a man can sit on a green screen, you know, like it doesn't, like it, it's not <laughs> real. Well, then you had Tim Burton's Batman in 1989, but yeah, okay, I get, I get where you're going. There's Marvel at it to me. And there's Marvel at the, you know, even the, the Michael Keaton Batman movies, which are serious and gritty, are actually kind of comical by modern standards. And they're trying to move towards what would become the MCU, what would become, for better or worse, the DCEU. They're trying to move towards a different style of filmmaking. And I think the X-Men movies and Blade are this, are this bridge of where this, these things tie in. If you appreciate it in the cultural moment of before 1997, no one had seen anything like that. It, yeah. it, it's completely innovative, but it seems it's very dated. And the problem with X, X2 and X3 is there's no innovation that goes from that first one is very, very special. And the next two is like, I guess we'll do that again. I mean, we made some money last time. <laughs> and that's <laughs> an X3 is like. Can we trick them three times? I don't know. <laughs> but let's, there's, of course, some other pieces in there. Let's let's tease that out a little bit, because when Chris talks about how Fox picked up on the wrong ideas, a lot of that had to do with Blade being such a surprise hit. And mm-hmm. people seeing that and, and that, but keep in mind, Blade is a surprise hit at the same time that you had that 
awful Captain America movie that they had to wind up releasing direct-to-video and the awful Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie that they had to release direct-to-video and, uh, and that Fantastic Four film that they tried to unpublish, right? They tried to get rid of because it turned out so awful. And then all of a sudden Blade makes money and suddenly it's like, okay, so what makes money? It's edgy underground people wearing black leather. So let's right. go ahead and take that forward, you know, mm -hmm. into the X-Men. No costumes, none of that stuff. We've moved away from Christopher Reeve's Superman towards Michael Keaton, Batman. It's all aesthetic, aesthetic, mm -hmm. aesthetic. And so the thing that's interesting about that, though, is X2, at least in some audiences, feel like it improved over the original only because that focus on Wolverine, that obsession with Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and, and kind of the idea that this is the character that we're going to build it around, which makes sense given what happened in the 80s mm -hmm. and all of that. X3 was what nearly killed that franchise, right? Yeah. And that's 100% because Brian Singer wanted to go make the Superman movie and his homage to Christopher Reeve. He didn't want to want to give it up. And so you have this kind of orphaned project that's that's less than it that it could have been. I don't think it's, it's just X3, messy. though. I think, it, I think what happened with those movies is a microcosm of what happened to the comic book industry in the 80s. The difference is movies cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. Comic books cost, you pay a couple of guys a couple hundred bucks. The Dark Age, you, you say, I love how you say what we used to call the modern age. Yeah. yeah. The Dark Age of comics, the image age of comics, and image, and I mean that derisively, even though I like a lot of image stuff, but I always tie, I always tie what happens to comics, particularly the X-Men, but comics in general in the 90s is due to people learning the, long, the wrong lessons from Watchmen and to a lesser extent, Dark Knight and Sin City. Watchmen is a revolutionary book that people read and they're like, oh, this is violent and dark and gritty. Watchmen's not violent. There are five panels worth of fight scenes in 12 issues of comics. People don't realize that because it seems like it in your head, but seriously, the prison break scene in Watchmen lasts four panels. It's so short and people don't actually get that because you remember the Zack Snyder movie, but they played up the grittiness because, wow, darkness sells. And I think that's what happened with the movies as well. You're right. Blade happened. X-Men happened. Batman happened. That's all in like a five, you know, a five year period from like 91 through 90, uh -huh. I guess like seven years, 91 through like 98. That's when all those movies, eh, Batman's 89, but it's one decade. And, th and those all happen and people sort of make everything dark. And then there was a point I remember Singer and I disagree with him. I remember Singer asked, being asked, you know, why are they in leather? And he, and he said, well, you know, no one would believe that people run around in spandex. And I'm like, you, you're only making this movie because people believe it. You know, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and now I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think it was bad to do that. The X-Men costumes from, from those movies. I just, you know, it was a choice, but that belief that this is the only way it can possibly be pervaded comic book movies up until Iron Man. They just didn't try. Punisher's running around in them and without Punisher in the Dolph Lundgren movie, is it's not good, but it's not bad either. It's exactly the same as every other 80s act, action movie. It's a yeah. guy who's going around killing people in a trench coat. That's the whole movie. Yeah. And they called it Punisher because they had the name. You know, so that's what they became because no one wanted to take a chance. I mean, Blade was a chance, but no one wanted to take a big chance. And then in order to make Iron Man, they basically mortgaged the entire company. So so it, it worked out, but that was a massive gamble. Two things before we move on. Number one, about the X-Men 
film franchise, that first film franchise, on the one hand, you know, I I have said and probably <laughs> will continue to say till I die that those movies are terrible. <laughs> but the caveat to that is it's the only time in the history of X-Men movies. And I'm talking the Days of Future Past timeline. I'm talking the, the 2000s, ver- mm-hmm. every version of that. Alan Cummings' Nightcrawler is the only time that they have ever gotten that story right. I hated it. I, I hate Alan Cummings' Nightcrawler. It's the only time they've ever gotten that story right. I like Alan Cummings. I do not like. I do not like his Nightcrawler. I hated it. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Uh, I don't want. I don't want to waste your time. With I love that version of Nightcrawler so much. Eight hours ago, as we're as we're recording, the most recent episode of my show dropped, which is also about X Men. And there's a lengthy discussion on the fact that nobody, for me, Nightcrawler is correct in Excalibur. And Anna Papard, who's on my, who's a, who's a guest on my show, is also she's a big Nightcrawler fan, and she said much the same thing. And one of the problems is there typically there are two ways to write Nightcrawler. People either write the goofy, jokey mascot of the team, or they write the dark, serious, religious guy of the team. And I think he is more complicated than that. I think Excalibur sort of says. Hey, I'm a guy who believes in God, but I also kind of want to with Captain Britain's girlfriend. And that's it. It's and he's torn and he's tragic and he's human. And I think since then, people have either just made him I'm swashbuckling and ha ha ha. Or they've sort of said, I'm a priest because I think he's more complex. And I and I look at Alan Cummings Nightcrawler as sort of the beginning of you're making him too serious. I think he is tragic, but I don't think he has to be flat, which is how I found that character. Here's something that's really strange about that, and this is constant throughout that franchise. There are things I like about every version of these, even somewhat that Wolverine Origins movie. <laughs> but, but, but it takes a lot, right? I'm, I'm always mining for, okay, I, I like this part of that. The first three minutes of Wolverine Origins are great. <laughs> Just skip everything else. Three minutes of fight scene, great. But how, how amazing is it that after all of those films over decade that we don't have what I would consider a recognizable Cyclops. <laughs> um, that, you know, the angel is sort of, you see pieces here and there, but it's really like, okay, I can see a reflection of him if I just assume that he's starting from the 90s and I ignore all of the 80s. Or here he is from when I can look at the 80s but ignore all the 60s. And that's part of what's so interesting about this. And, and that's part of why I was saying, I, I don't disagree, they learned the wrong lessons. And I... I don't mean that to be as pejorative as it sounds. It's just that the film franchise, the further it went on, catered more and more to fans. Mm -hmm. And it was not just full of Easter eggs, but it was also trying to recapture stories that were far too complex to actually put in the Mm -hmm. limited amount of screen time that they were going to put together. But as a result, you get these weird short shrifts of characters. Mm -hmm. I agree. I've never seen the Nightcrawler that I recognize from his limited series or even from the Mm eighties, you know, comics or or from Excalibur or any of that. But the weirdest one to me is always going to be Cyclops. It's a character that I don't like, but I also don't recognize on film, right? So just caveat. I did say it's the only Nightcrawler I've ever seen on film that gets his character in any way right. In any way right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Better than the the more recent one where he's just he's wearing the beat it jacket, which I think is a I think is a exactly. neat idea, but I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is I think that we when we say, well these these films by the time 
these X-Men films roll around. It's the best films ever made, you know, superhero films at the time or whatever. I do want to caveat that the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man comes out in 2002 Mm -hmm. and blows out every superhero movie made up to that point. The reason I point that one specifically is it's not, let's put this kid in leather and have everything happen at night. That film embraces a traditional superhero ethos and and in 2002 makes all the money. I mean, it it that movie blows out mm-hmm. superhero yeah. films. Just for inflation, still still one of the best. By going back to traditional red and blue Spider-Man. So here's the other weird thing, and this is going to lead us to probably the the nerd fan out fanboy discussion about what is in the future of the X-Men now that it's jumped companies. We also have how many Hugh Jackman appearances over all of these films and never once saw the actual Wolverine costume, anything resembling that. That's how adverse, (laughs) right? That they were to this whole concept of what that was. You know, we never saw those those classic costumes, et cetera. There's always that, that rendition. But that's what also opens the door to what does it mean to have the X-Men franchise in the MCU with its style and its embracing in certain ways of that, although they definitely adjust comic book aesthetics mm-hmm. to kind of fit their their needs and put us into that place. And I mean, I, I'm I'm insanely curious. I'm I'm as curious about that as I am Fantastic Four, both of which had these previous franchises with other companies that are going to look very different. But what do you do? The the, the franchises that we saw were mining heavily the readership that comic book fan base without actually showing them Mm -hmm. the things that showed up that were iconic in many cases and so i'm kind of curious to see how that evolution is going to occur wait hold on before we get too deep into that now would be a good time for us to go ahead and take a little break here so let's take a break we'll come back in two and two I'm Brucker. I'm Levi. And together we co-host a movie podcast called Film on the Rocks. On our movie podcast, we like to have fun with movies and we don't like to break down movies beat by beat, scene by scene. We like to talk about what was fun about them. So we talk about our favorite scenes, uh, sprinkle in some trivia, uh, we debate whether or not they deserve a sequel, and we also talk about um, some drinking rules that they can have, such as drink every time Vince Vaughn stuffs his face in Wedding Crashers. Or something we call the Yoda Clause, which is every time Frank Oz jumps on a screen, finish your drink. You can find us on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or really anywhere you can find podcasts, if this sounds interesting to you. Yes, and we also love listener interaction, and we also like to take movie requests. So you could reach out to us on Twitter at Film on the Rocks, Instagram, Film on the Rocks Podcast, or email us at fotrpodcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from y'all. Give us a listen. And we're back. I think Mav was going to jump in on this. I'm curious. I just, I'm a weird fan, even as a non-academic, as as a fan if i just even if i turn off the that part of my brain which is like how am i going to teach this one day i i i am not in a rush i i i know everybody else is oh my god i can't wait to see this Fantastic Four. i can't wait to see the x-men who are they going to get to be the new wolverine i don't really care and the thing is because comics are so different to me from the movies one of my favorite recent comic book movies is deadpool I hate Deadpool in the comic. I can't stand them. And, you know, other comic fans are just like, oh, how can you not? You know, have you read? Yes, I've read this. Trust me, if there's a comic book and you've heard of it, I've read it. OK, <laughs> yeah, it's, this is my job. I don't like him. I don't care at all. I love that movie, particularly the first one. And I like the second one a lot. I think that for what it is, 
it's great. I'm not a huge Guardians of the Galaxy fan in the comics, or at least I wasn't. And if anybody who said, says they were, they're lying because that book sold horribly. I know the sales figures. They're no, absolutely lying. Yeah. No one was reading Guardians of the Galaxy. It was a bad choice. James Gunn picked it because he figured I can do whatever I want and no one's going to complain because no one knows what happened in, in the canon. Yeah. The Guardians of the Galaxy was selling like 12,000 copies before that movie. It was off. It was like that's, it was abysmally bad. And so he writes what he wants to. So I, you know, wait, when you have a good idea, make an X-Men movie. The best thing that ever happened to Marvel was not having access to their marquee characters because it forced them to write a real movie with Iron Man. They had no choice because they couldn't just rely on everybody knowing who Iron Man was. They go out of their way in the marketing. Go back and watch the trailers and they're like, this is Iron Man. He's not a robot. They go out of their way to tell you. It's a guy, it's a man, not a robot. Very important that you understand this is Robert Downey Jr., the human man. I'm willing to wait. Kevin Feige has made a lot of really good decisions over the last 12 years. Let him work it out. I don't need to see Wolverine and and the thing just jumping in and in the wake of the Infinity Gauntlet, new people over Yeah, whatever, you know. (laughs) No, and so really what interests me is when you go back, especially when you're going back to that Silver Age Mm -hmm. era and, and even the Bronze Age, when those teams would come into contact, it was actually a pretty rare thing, yes. right? The, the building of the Marvel Universe. It's a very 80s thing to say all of these heroes are in the same place. Secret Wars was a huge deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. exactly. So Secret Wars is something that I hope that they do. I hope they don't do soon, right? Because you have to build up the stories to make Secret Wars be what it is. Give me a decade. Over time. That's, I mean... Right. Like, and that's it's the difference between the DCEU and the MCU. The DCEU said, wow, Marvel made a lot of money over the last 10 years. How can we get there in two? And that was a mistake, starting with Batman versus Superman. I mean, yes, I get that I know who Batman is. I get that I know who Superman is. I get that I know who Wonder Woman is. And it's not just because I'm a scholar. Everybody knows who Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are. But I don't, you know, I've not grown to care about I wanted to. I actually thought Ben Affleck was very good at that role, but I didn't really. You're asking me to just transfer my love for Christian Bale and Michael Keaton to this new iteration, and that's not fair to the Affleck character or the Cavill character, and you're rushing. So, yeah, like, why did I care about Infinity War? Like I said, it's not a real movie. It's not something I can teach in a film class because you can't start on chapter 18 of the story I would never teach War and Peace and be like, I'm teaching War and Peace, but skip the first 17 chapters. That's not how that's not how stories work. Infinity War was something special and they earned my trust over 12 years to get me to the point where I'm willing to say, all right, kill everybody off. And I trust that you're going to fix this in a year. Right. That's a special thing. And I think that I will happily watch Secret Wars Part One in 2031. Looking forward to yeah. it, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm with you. It, it's just that the one downside of the isolation, which there was a while I thought, well, what if they preserve these continuities and then they can bring them together in kind of a multiverse? Mm-hmm. You could you could, ha- you could have that, but clearly that's not what's going to happen. But it's also, it's changed those characters. I mean, mm-hmm. for a whole generation, Wolverine is Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. And to me, while I have appreciated him as an actor and I've appreciated some of the things they've done with that character, the idea of a Wolverine that looks more like Captain America than the five foot three, smelly, small, hairy guy that's frankly kind of ugly is he's in many ways the anti, mm-hmm. the antithesis of what the MCU presents as Wolverine. And so not, to not be able to see those two side by side, it's almost like Wolverine becomes that 
that charismatic, attractive, hyper-masculine Captain America figure mm-hmm. who has some of the tragic backstory that comes with the Weapon X program and all of that. But it, it, it's that community of diversity that lets characters differentiate themselves mm-hmm. against each other that I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I hope they slowly weave it in, but I am really looking for a Nightcrawler I recognize, a Wolverine that I recognize, not dismissing the popularity of what they did do, mm-hmm. but having more than a dozen characters at any given time gives you that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the reason why Endgame is so impressive is 47 heroes charging into battle with an army behind them. That's never been done before. But what if it were 200? <laughs> but it's 47 heroes I care about. Or more specifically, it's at least one hero I care about that they've spent 12 years trying to find out which hero it is that I care about. And do I care about all 47? Mm, Kind of. Would I care about all 200? Kind of. But I think that's the point that Mav's getting at is they've taken the time to make me care about every one of those heroes at some level. I get it. And the thing is... Sure, I want more because I've said this on my show. I did a paper on this at PCA where I talked about all the hate that the Iron Fist TV show got. And I thought that was unearned because when Iron Fist was on the air, you might not like Iron Fist, but let's be fair. Iron Fist is the fourth best superhero show on television today. And it's <laughs> and the only reason you don't like it is because you're comparing it to the three best superhero shows on television today which are on the same network because people don't remember this iron fist dropped at the same time as inhuman and if you thought iron fist was the wrong with the worst show on television you're wrong inhumans was horrible i get that and i always want better so sure so and i don't and i don't want to challenge on that my perspective might be a little different in that i'm i'm one of those people that watched all of those netflix shows Me too. Mm -hmm. they're good for what they are But the problem with the Iron Fist component of that whole selection uh, of that choice is when you go back, it it goes back to this idea in the Bronze Age of you've got two books that don't do well, which is Luke Cage has a certain kind of niche popularity, but not making big bucks. The urban population. (laughs) Which, as we've said on this show many times, is always just code for black. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, right. And you've got Iron Fist that is one one of their many martial art knockoff Mm -hmm. attempts at at trend fiction. But you put them together and weirdly, Pyromane and Iron Fist becomes incredibly popular. It actually is good, too, if you go back and read it. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. But part of the reason why that works so well is the social commentary that comes into it. Having the big Mm -hmm. and vulnerable African-American I don't break person with the white blonde kid who inherited stumbled into this privilege mm-hmm. that he has and the way that he is so disconnected from urban realities and having that discourse and on that netflix show it was just so hard to see danny rand's trajectory as anything other than holy crap out of touch privilege that mm-hmm. doesn't really learn and part of that is they never could do an actual power man and iron fist they were they weren't they intersected but you need both of those together to make each other better. The best episode of all of the, and, and I know it's, so here's where I'm going to go back into being an academic instead of a nerd, because yeah. I know nerds disagree with me. The best episode of television from the entire Netflix run of Daredevil season one through Punisher, all of them, the best episode of any of them is the fourth episode of the Defenders TV series where they sit in a Chinese restaurant and they have dinner and you just get to see Power Man, Jessica Jones, 
Daredevil and Iron Fist interact with each other. And then Stan comes in. It's like, this is brilliant because that's the character building that I want. And it worked because it's a bottle episode. It's in a, in a TV technical term. Bottle episodes are basically, we only have so much money, so we're going to film on one set. It's a bottle episode. And it works because they're forced to do character development. And that's what I want to see out of however they bring the X-Men into the MCU. That's what I want to see. The reason because we they learned the wrong le- lesson from the 80s, from Dark Phoenix Saga. Finger may, wanted to make that movie because, oh my God, I want to do Dark Phoenix because it's the thing everybody remembers. But Dark Phoenix isn't interesting because you get to see Jean Grey raise her hand and fire, below, fire show up behind her. Dark Phoenix was interesting because you had six years of character building to this arc where they killed, intended to be permanently, they killed a major per character of that series, sort of out of the blue, because she takes an irredeemable action and it becomes a, that is a meaningful story that can't be, you can't just do that in one movie. If you want to do that, you have to take 20 movies to build up to it. There's a reason why yeah. Captain America never says Avengers Assemble until Infinity War. We're going to make you work for it. And yeah. I was in, you know, again, I'm a grown man. I'm in my 40s. I'm sitting here in the in the theater. And he said, and, you know, when he does the Avengers and he and everybody jumps down and then the hammer goes up there, uh, a symbol. And I'm like, yay! Like I'm like, I'm seven because they earned it. They earned that emotional beat from me. And I think that you can do that over 30 issues of a comic or over 30 movies. You can't do it in two hours. It's a different kind of storytelling. You're, you're not wrong. And that returns us right back to X3 when Scott Summers is suddenly killed. And Ooh. is he in that movie? I don't remember him being in that movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. Like, I, I'm like, he's he's supposed to be the central glue of that whole team. And you just don't really even notice like there's kind of like wait did he die i don't not sure he died he died oh he died, he died. off screen okay, whatever. off screen and then it, you just don't yeah and and then they go more to the focus of logan and gene and that was unearned as mm-hmm. well and it just we didn't get there and so they did that story twice which is their most popular story and both times felt like colossal missteps in different directions it's bad yeah <laughs> It's bad because, like you said, it's unearned. Yes. If you want to tell the Dark Phoenix storyline, I need you to make five lead-up films <laughs> to that story. Yeah. And they uh-huh. never do it. They never actually... The Dark Phoenix story, what they don't understand is that is a plant and payoff story. Yeah. That is a story that starts right years before that that story comes into being and they don't want to ever do the legwork to get that story where it needs to be in order to tell it. The problem with the most recent version is that when you watch X-Men Dark Phoenix, the final movie in that series, and when you watch Apocalypse, there's there's so little character growth that when I watch the like first class, I actually like in Days of Future Past is okay because it's mostly a Wolverine movie. The other people are in it. Then you get to like start to Apocalypse and Last Stand and I'm asked to care about her becoming Phoenix because I care about Sansa Stark. Right. I'm not asked to care about Jean Grey. They're counting on me having goodwill from Sophie Turner being in another thing that I like for me to care that she's going bad in this movie. But the, but if I've never seen Game of Thrones, I don't know who this person is. It does not tell me in that film. I don't know why she's in love with Scott. I don't know anything. If I don't know, and I think this is where it falls flat, People didn't know who Alexandra Ship was, so there's no reason to care about Storm. In the Apocalypse movie, Psylocke shows up. Who? Who is she? I don't know who that person is. 
<laughs> well, or the, the the fall of Angel, the move from Angel to Archangel is completely lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of it. And so that's what I'm saying. We might want to just extend what, what Chris was just saying to more of a systemic critique is that the X-Men film franchise became kind of like tourism <laughs> of the X-Men universe. When Martin Scorsese talks about superhero films being theme parks, I have some strong objection to some of that. But when you look at the X-Men film franchise, I feel like that's exactly what mm-hmm. it is. I'm, we're going to give you a, a kind of a, a mini tour of this version. So I'm walking up on this exhibit and I'm going to talk about who Angel was and why I should care. And it- In my beginning screenwriting classes, I talk about showing versus telling. And sometimes it's hard for students to get their heads around. But this is a classic example of what happens when you tell an audience rather than showing them. That's exactly how it feels. Like I'm being pulled through somebody else's view of all of this. And I know because I read it, am I supposed to connect my intermedia understanding of the comic books that I love to these films? Because you didn't do that either. You, you can't you can't just force that. And that that's part of what was... I, I, I found myself those last few ones saying, well, this is interesting the way that they have a puzzle box that's connecting these classic stories together in a very innovative mm-hmm. way, but the character development is missing, and I'm really struggling to figure out who was this actually made for. I cannot figure it out. And today, I still can't figure out what they thought. That's why I like Logan. I care more about X-23 and Logan than I care about any version of Cyclops across six movies. 100%. Not in the comic books. In the comic books, I think she's from the wrong era. I think she's an interesting character, but to me, she's just another clone. From that film, from the X-Men films, I care more about that little girl, who's very different than the comic book character anyway. I'm more connected to her story because they gave me a reason to understand who she was in one movie. So I think it's possible. This is the major problem with the X-Men franchise, film franchise, is exactly what you're saying, which is they never have figured out who is this for? Mm -hmm. Who is this for? Because they're not trying to tell X-Men stories so much as they're trying to maximize their profits by cannibalizing these major set pieces without ever honing in on the core soul of the text itself. It's the diametric opposite of something like Netflix's Daredevil. Rick and I have had lots of conversations about this. It is fairly common knowledge amongst my friends. Daredevil is my absolutely favorite Marvel thing on Earth. I'm a huge Daredevil fan. And Daredevil is the kind of a text where I could get my wife to watch the television show. (laughs) Yeah. My wife, who legitimately kind of openly hates everything comic book that I love, (laughs) it's the way that I can bridge her into watching this show is because I can say unequivocally, if you love the Daredevil television series and you used that to bridge into the comic books, you're probably going to be super disappointed when you get to the comic books. It's telling two very different Mm -hmm. kinds of stories. And the only time you're going to get the Daredevil television series stories is if you go and read a very specific run of Daredevil. Yeah. If you read born again, but it's not the same story and you're lost. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but what it does so well is it taps into the soul of the Daredevil comic, right? It tells its own story. It tells its own mythos. It's loosely based on a couple of comic arcs, but it is very much its own entity. And this wraps all the way back around to the beginning of this conversation. 
it's very much its own entity. And is there a part of me that sorely laments the fact that the Netflix universe was caged off, no pun intended, from (laughs) the MCU proper? Yes, there is, because there's a really great CGI after effects version of that final scene in Infinity War where you can see Charlie Cox jumping through the background, which I really, really love. Like someone has put him into that final battle scene. You're going to send me that. I actually haven't seen that. So that Daredevil could be there. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But the text itself stands alone. And I think, Mav, you've hit on a really important point about the X universe, which is none of those texts stand alone. Yeah. It's either presuming you know enough about X-Men to fill in the gaps, in which case you hate those texts (laughs) in the first place. Like, you you hate those films. Or you don't know anything about this text at all, but you love Hugh Jackman and you love Sophie Turner, so you're going to show up for these movies and be in the mythos Mm -hmm. because of your love for the actors, not necessarily love with the story. There's nothing about those films that draws me into the story itself to keep me coming back for the story itself. In a way that something like Daredevil was able to do on Netflix, or even in a way something like Guardians of the Galaxy has done mm-hmm. you know, for the MCU cinematically. I don't have to have read the frankly hot garbage <laughs> you know, Guardians of the Galaxy comic books in order to love mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't have to do any gap filling. And the X universe makes me fill in gaps all the time in ways that guarantee that those those movies are never going to be successful. It's why they can't tell the Dark Phoenix story. Like I said, it's unearned. They can never tell that story because they're relying on two very different groups of viewers, neither one of which is going to be happy with the fact that they're telling this story. Yeah. Right. Well, and even the clever moves in it, you know, the, the idea that we're going to set this in the Cuba Missile Crisis. And I'm thinking, I remember when, when First Class came out and I thought, well, this is really clever. What group of comic book fans are knowledgeable about the events of that particular era, though? And, and what happened? Yeah. That wasn't something that really worked its, its way into the text. I mean, right. it, it, again, it's so bizarre, the choices that they made in many ways. It's Well, going back to the beginning of our conversation, it is the backdrop of those first three issues, the first couple of issues. The first X-Men story is Magneto trying to cause a missile crisis. That's X-Men number one. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's... But how obscure of a comic book nerd do you have to be? Like, I know this right. because it's my job to know this. I, I, it's not, I, I can't expect someone to do homework to watch a movie. I've lost track of the number of times I've made this exact same argument about Harry Potter. If you've never read Harry Potter, I have no idea how you understand what's going on in those movies at all. Because it relies on you having done the homework before you get in the theater. I shouldn't have. That's why I like the Deadpool movies. The Deadpool right. movies, you know, I don't care about him in the comics. And he tells me, and it, you know, nobody knew who Negasonic Teenage Warhood was. She, she's in like one yeah. comic and dies, you know, briefly. They right. told me who that character was for that film. She's entirely different in the film anyway than she had been in the comic before. And they and they made a character out of him and made, and made me care about it. So I think you can do it. I think you can do that for. There's a whole big gap in the of comics that i think were bad in the x-men that frankly I'm, and i'm sorry if you're a big comic fan you know people always love whatever happened when they're coming to came of age but the last couple of years of x-men before one year ago when they returned to hickman have been really bad 
Hickman revitalized yeah. the series. Onslaught was really bad. In, no argument like, in House of X, Powers of X. He made me care about people that I have never cared about. Like, you go, oh, look, I've done this thing with Hope Summers and Gold Ball. I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> right. You're like, hey, they killed Husk. Yeah. And now I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I care. Yeah. Wait. Wait, you made me care that they killed Husk? Really? Like, I cared about that. Yeah. So, but, but the funny thing, so I'm going to pull a couple of threads together. The, the thing about Deadpool that worked so well, and I hope is a lesson learned, I, I don't think it is. I don't think it's understanding it already. Because, I have a, I'm watching it. I tell a friend of mine who kind of likes comic books that doesn't really know these characters, hey, watch this. And then the question is, Wait, how many of these characters are based on comics? And the answer is, who cares? Yes. I mean, because the the the, the movie itself works, and yes, I can go back and find the connections of, of those characters. Now, the problem with that is, of course, I don't know if you've seen this, but like over the weekend, Rob Liefeld's been tweeting. Rob Liefeld is a comic book writer, mostly in the '90s, and he's one of the people who helped create Deadpool. Yeah. What he does is he'll say, here is X-Men Origins Wolverine version of Deadpool without Liefeld. Here is Deadpool with Liefeld. And I'm like, Rob Liefeld, it was not you. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, it is not your comics. It is not what you did in the 90s. This was a mm -hmm. Ryan Reynolds thing, let's be honest. And it worked for that. But that's kind of what is intriguing me about what could happen with an MCU version of these characters. Because... This is where I'll probably say a couple of unpopular things, which is Iron Man is, for all of the work that they did for him and for Captain America, and even to some degree Thor, are the most all-over-the-place inconsistent characters throughout those <laughs> narratives. They're kind of movie-by-movie movie working out who these characters are. They make me care by mostly by making me ignore the inconsistencies from movie to movie mm -hmm. about who they are. So it's not that kind of storytelling. So all of that to say, the 1980s soap opera epic that the X-Men was that was so popular that made us care about these characters that had these very delineated mm -hmm. and, and very iconic personalities that we felt. I mean, I, it's been a long time, but I mean, I can remember it's been a long time since I felt, wow, this happened in a comic book and I'm upset. Like Gwen Stacy dying in a comic book that mm -hmm. made me upset. You know, Jean Grey dying. Jean's contract's mine. Upset. Comics don't really do that anymore. And and the problem is the MCU makes me care about the characters not because of that soap opera story. They just find good ways of presenting personality and you know let me let letting me project into that. So I'm really curious to see. But at the end of the day, I think we all know that 80s, it's not gonna be a transfer. Mm -hmm. It's its own thing. I want to encourage anyone who likes that and wants to understand why it was popular to actually read the whole length of it, but then I'm also really excited to see mm -hmm. how it gets adapted into the MCU. So am I. I'm super excited to see how it gets adapted into the MCU. I can't wait to get a good, solid, recognizable version of Jubilee on screen. I'm sort of giddy about the opportunity to maybe do that. But checking out the clock, I can see that we're at about the end of our time today. 
But don't worry, because like every other episode this season, this is a two-parter. So we will be back with you in two weeks to finish out this conversation. There's a lot more left to talk about in the X-Universe. So for now, for Dr. Rick Stevens and soon-to-be Dr. Chris Maverick, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.